morning's sermon is the first in a series, a series of messages that will be preached from this pulpit this year. And I encourage you, if you have not read this little letter, five chapters in the New Testament of 1 Peter, particularly uh, as a young person, teenager, or someone in elementary school, read 1 Peter and uh, maybe read it several times. That, that could be a Bible reading plan for you this year is to do an in-depth study in 1 Peter as we preach through it. I want to commend our women's ministry, or women of this church, or women of the Word. And they have been studying 1 Peter through the fall. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have coordinated the, the, the pulpit ministry with our uh, small group Bible studies within the women's ministry. The, uh, as, as, as we begin this series of messages, I want to ask a very basic question appropriate for the new year. Do you matter? Does your life matter? If it does, how would you know? Perhaps you might point to your parents. My mom loves me. My dad loves me. Maybe you'd point out your friends who value your company. Maybe you'd look to your achievements, what you've accomplished if you're a student. Some of you are in college or graduate school. You know you matter because you're about to graduate high school or you're, you're enrolled in a bachelor's program of study. Maybe you make good grades. Maybe you're the first one in your family to go to school. And so you matter for that reason. If you're in the workforce, perhaps you matter because you got a raise this year and that felt good. It felt like the boss was affirming your value to the company. Maybe you're, you're smart, you score well on those tests. Maybe you're the best welder in South Jersey. That's how you matter. This kind of problem, figuring out whether you matter, is like the, the problem that first century Christians scattered across the Roman Empire faced in the days when Peter wrote this letter. There was an intense social pressure to conform to the standards, the morals, and the norms of the ancient world, the pagan society in which they lived. There was a way of thinking and acting that put pressure on the Christians and they were forced to answer the question on a daily basis in the face of a hostile society, do you matter? According to the old lifestyle, your worth was measured by your attainments in society, your, your status, your honorable status, and by your family. And so climbing the ladder was the only way to know if you were a person of worth, the only way to know if you really mattered. If you lived then, that's why you would be drawn, regularly tempted to be lured away to the empty, godless way of life that either you or your parents had established. And it's so subtle that it would be hard to resist. It would be like a fish swimming in water. It'd be absolutely normal to you to conform to this kind of thinking. Except that you've been baptized. You've heard the message of the gospel and you've been inducted into a whole new way of life, a, 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 con, a code of conduct that neither your parents or your grandparents had known. And now as a follower of Jesus, that old pattern 
of mattering no longer applies to you. So it's a constant struggle. In the new way of Jesus, worthiness was measured differently. Status is not given on the basis of your attainments, nor is your worth connected to your old family name. Mattering is established on a new scale, and so Peter is writing this letter, this, this five-chapter letter in the New Testament, is given to us because these Christians all across the Roman Empire were struggling with this very thing. They are tired of the fight, and they're tempted to give up. They don't think or feel like their efforts are making any difference. And these, of course, are conditions that are quite similar to us today. We, like these first century Christians in the modern West, are facing the temptation to define our lives on what matters to the world and not on what matters to God. We also face constant pressure to go along, to get along, to view our lives and our circumstances, for you to view your attainments according to a worldly norm and to measure morality by the prevailing customs of the people around you, what you see on TV or watch in the movies or hear on, in, the, in the realm of music or broadcast over different social media outlets. But God sees things differently than all of these people. Your life matters to God. And so as we begin a study of 1 Peter this year, we're going to return again and again to this theme of why you are important to God and how easy it is to forget this. And part of the purpose of preaching is to hear from God. My job as a preacher is not just to tell you about Jesus, but to speak for Jesus. And Jesus' word for you this morning in the title of my sermon is that you matter. You matter to God. So I want to begin by reading God's word, a small portion, just the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we're going to pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and on our hearing of God's holy word. Here's the scripture this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. God, as we have read these, these uh, words from your holy word, I pray that you would help us to understand how you see us and how indeed our lives matter to you. So now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections, even the questions on each one of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You matter. Why? First of all, because God the Father has known you from eternity. He's known you in advance. What does our text say in verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge 
of God the Father. Foreknowledge means to know something beforehand, hence foreknowledge. It's to know something in advance. But this isn't just God looking down through the corridors of time and like a movie, seeing things playing out and he gets sort of the, the early screening of the film. No, for God to know something is an effective knowing. When, when something becomes present in the mind of God, when something enters into the knowledge of God, it comes about. So it's an effective knowing. I love how one theologian explains this. For God to foreknow is for God to forelove. It's to love in advance. This is God's pre-commitment to all that pertains in your life. It's not just knowing about you. To foreknow is to embrace you. Everything about you. Isn't just an advance awareness, but an advance promise that every single event of your life He will direct for your good and His glory. He has great purposes in the world that He is working out in each one of your lives. And for God to know you in advance means He is committed that those purposes will come to pass regardless of what you may experience along the way. Little OU have a, have a big big place in God's plan for the world. I thought of illustrating this. We like to go out with our children over the Christmas holiday, and we did so again this year. It takes a a lot of planning and setting aside some money, and we choose a restaurant and all of these things. And I like to think that's what a good mom and dad do, is they think in advance about the welfare of their children. And then, not just thinking about it, but they make painful sacrifices in order to bring these things about. If that's what a good mom does or a good dad does, just planning a meal in advance for the family, what about a good father, a good heavenly father? What do you think God does for you? His foreknowledge goes far beyond simply being aware that you exist. Oh yeah, I know that person. No, God does everything necessary for your salvation every single thing in advance. Here's a couple of helpful scripture truths I think that illustrate this. You don't need to turn here, but maybe make notes if you're taking note in Jeremiah 1.5. This is what God says of his prophet. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Notice in this text, which is a parallel concept, God knows Jeremiah before Jeremiah exists. And in this passage, three terms are set out in parallel. I knew you, I consecrated you, and I appointed you. So these are parallel ideas. This is not just a passive knowing like, yeah, I see you. But it's an active, engaged knowing. It's a knowing that that creates the very thing that God knows. God not only knows Jeremiah, He has a plan for Jeremiah, and His plan for Jeremiah is what He knows about Jeremiah. 
and he will bring that about. You say, well, that's fine and dandy for the great prophet Jeremiah, but God doesn't care about little old me, does he? Oh, yes, he does. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, the very same thing that God says of mighty Jeremiah, he says of the weakest, poorest, vilest, sinfulest, least significant person you can imagine, even you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's right. You, little old you, are going to be as glorious, resplendent, holy, honored, and revered as the very Son of God Himself. And even as Jesus is seated on the throne, so you are seated even now by the foreknowledge of God in the heavenly places in Christ. That is the foreknowledge of God. Your life matters because the Father knows you in advance. Now I want to think about this. Why does this prove that your life matters? Here's how my logic goes. See if you follow. God is the creator and He's the sovereign director of all that exists. And if this is true, and if He's chosen you, you can be certain that your life matters to Him. The author of reality, of time and space, the creator of the molecules and the distant stars, that's the one who knows you and has loved you in advance. And if that's the case, then it's impossible for you not to matter. It's literally impossible for you to be insignificant. You say, well, how can one in eight billion people matter? Well, that's not possible unless the God who knows and has created and planned the, the, the very moments of eight billion people so infinitely surpasses that number eight billion that there aren't enough pages in the planet to write the number of zeros after that. If the God of the eight billion people and of the one person that we're talking about is infinitely beyond our capacity to even count or imagine, then yes, you matter. Well, how do you know if you're chosen? I'm often asked this question, and though academics debate these sorts of things, it doesn't require an academic degree. It really boils down to this. You know that you've been chosen by God because of Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus is who the Bible says He is guarantees that you were chosen by God. That's right. It's a cold, hard fact that doesn't rest on anything you think, say, or do. But your chosenness rests on who He is and what He's done. He lived a perfect life 2,000 years ago that you could never live. And He died on the cross and shed His precious blood for your sins. And that's how you can know that you were chosen by God. So your life matters, not only because God the Father has known you in advance, that's my first point, but your life matters because the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune majesty, has set you apart. Take a look at our text again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the word that our Bibles say sanctification, I paraphrased as setting you apart. What does this mean? Your status as one of God's chosen one is not only based on his powerful and promising foreknowledge, it's based on the peculiar way in which the Holy Spirit of God has sanctified you, which is to say he's indicated that you're special and belonging to him. Something that's sanctified is holy. It's to be treated with great reverence. It's to be cherished. It's of great value. It's not common. It is not ordinary. And it's not to be trifled with. And so you know that your life matters because God has set you apart by His Holy Spirit. See, this is something that you didn't necessarily ask for. You weren't necessarily expecting. And in fact, in my experience, I was working for the opposite. I was actually trying to be common and ordinary and fitting in to everybody around me and trying to be cool. It's difficult for me, but I tried. And God says, no, you don't need to do that. You're special because of my Holy Spirit. I have sanctified you. I have set you apart. And I said, really? Me? I'm special? God said, yes. Why was it looking for that, God? It was the last thing on my mind. And he says, I know. But I've known you from eternity. And this is what I've done. I've set you apart for myself. You're very special to me. Now in our house, speaking of meals, when it's steak night, it's a special night in the Henry house. So we don't just use any knives for steak night in our house. We have special, sanctified, holy steak knives. And if you're one of the Henry children, you know that these knives are only used on steak night. And we have good steak on steak nights. And they're kept in the, the top of the cabinet in a special case with sheaths on them. And you better not lose those sheaths. Well, all humor aside, you are special to God. He's set you apart. He's treated you as something extremely valuable. You were ordinarily mixed up and blended in with the great mass of humanity, which is in opposition to God. If you're honest, you can admit that you are or you were fighting against God. You were living like a rebel, breaking His rules and enjoying it. Living high on the hog as if you were the master of your own destiny. Desecrating everything sacred about God's world and God's Word. Something happened. Peter will talk about it in terms of birth. We'll see this next week. It isn't just a regular birth, though. This isn't a human birth, per se. This isn't coming out of your mother's womb. That happens to everybody. This is a new birth. This is a supernatural coming into being. It's not something that happens on its own. It's something that happens by the Holy Spirit. You're brought into a supernaturally special reality that didn't exist before. You're chosen because you matter to God. So in the question of whether you matter to God, the answer is yes, you do, because He's chosen you by setting you apart through His Holy Spirit. He's made you special and enabled you to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
Martin Williams, who's written deeply on this topic, puts it this way. In sanctification, quote, we see the initial act of God in which a sinner is set apart or consecrated from an old way of life in the world to a new reality. That's what it means to be sanctified by the Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So you matter to God because God the Father knows you in advance and because the Spirit has made you special. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If someone asks you, what is the good news of the gospel? It's that God loved me from before the foundation of the world and the Spirit has set me apart by His power before I even knew it. And that's how I know that God loves me. That is the good news of the gospel right there. So what's our response? Your life matters to God. You can't just leave it there. God has said that you matter. God, Almighty God, the Creator of all that there is. You can't just walk away from that. That's not a ho-hum, boring story. The Creator of the ends of the earth has identified you as His precious son or daughter. He has set you apart for His majestic purposes, which you get to discover on a day-to-day basis. You're going to walk away from that? What is your response? The text tells us in verse 2 that your response is obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with His blood. Do you see that in our passage? Two phrases here that need to be unpacked a little bit. What is this obedience to Jesus Christ? It's understood as your initial commitment. It's an act of faith in which a sinner is converted. Uh, My friend used to have a bumper sticker on his car. It says, if you're headed in the wrong direction, God allows U-turns. See that? I was just converted. I was driving down the highway, highway to hell. And God, by His Holy Spirit, helped me turn my life around. That's obedience to Jesus Christ. It's that initial, determined commitment. I love you, and I want to live for you. Obedience to Jesus Christ. You see it further again down in verse 22 of chapter 1. Paul also speaks of the obedience to faith in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. This describes your, your first expression of saying, I want to live my life for God. I see that God has made promises to me. I now understand what those promises mean. And I'm not going to go back to that old way. Why is it Jesus Christ? Why is Jesus specified here? Well, I think on one sense it rounds out the Trinity. We see the Father and the Spirit. It's only appropriate that the Holy Trinity is, is rounded out by referencing Jesus Christ. But why, why is our obedience specifically to Jesus Christ? Why do you think that it's not sanctified by Jesus Christ? Peter could have said that, and Jesus does sanctify us, and we read that elsewhere in the Scriptures. The reason why Jesus is the one who receives your obedience, get this, He's the one who performs the obedience. Can you see that? Think about it. A lot of people think about the Christian faith as revolving around or pointing to the cross, and it's true. What happens on the cross is that a man named Jesus, who claims to be God, dies as an innocent victim for all of your and my sins. And that's good news. But that's not the whole of the good news. 
That's his suffering and death. But many, many Christians, and you may fall into this camp, forget the other half of the good news, which is that he was obedient in our place his entire mortal life. He lived and never once disobeyed the commandments of God. There was never one commandment that he failed to obey. He loved absolutely, perfectly his mother and father as he should have loved. Every commandment he kept to the fullest, not only outwardly, but from the heart. And you see, his obedience is given to you even as your sin is given to him. It's a double transaction. So if you're only looking at the cross and not at the life of Christ, dare I say it, you're only half a Christian. Not only do you need your sins purged, that just brings you back to zero. You were like negative 500, negative 5,000. So yes, the cross brings you up to zero. You're, all your transgressions are removed and now you're, you're viewed as a blank slate. And now what? You get to work your way to heaven from here? Well, good luck. I'd like to know how that turns out for you. No, the good news is more than just your sins are wiped away. The obedience of Jesus Christ is imputed to your account and you are viewed as a faithful son, the firstborn son of the Father. And so when he sees you, he doesn't just see someone who has no sin. He sees someone who has always done what is right. That's the gospel. What's the gospel, brother, sister? If I ask you this, what is the gospel? I want to hear you say this. He's not only wiped my sins away, but he lived in my place. And so now I give my life to him. He's done it all for me. And so my act of faith is a commitment to follow this one, this man, who proved himself not only in his suffering and death, but in his righteous life. That's why I think it's obedience to Jesus Christ. What about the sprinkling of the blood? Well, stay with me here. This is very important. The Scripture says that your response to the loving knowledge of God, the predestinating power and plan of the Father, the special setting apart of the Holy Spirit, elicits a response two things obedience to Jesus Christ and then sprinkling with his blood sprinkling with his blood this describes the God side of the covenant this is not you sprinkling yourself with blood this is God sprinkling you with blood this is actually an echo of an important story in the Old Testament. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me here as we conclude our sermon. Exodus chapter 24. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 24. We're looking at the question of what does Peter mean by the sprinkling of the blood? Here's what the text says, picking up at verse 3 of Exodus 24. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We see the people have been led out of Egypt, and they are now at the holy mountain of God. Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments. 
where God speaks to Moses and he gives them his law. And then we come to this passage in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So there's obedience right there. And then what happens? And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. He threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Peter, in the second verse of his letter, is saying the thing that happened at the mountain with Israel in the Exodus was very small in comparison to what has happened with Jesus who died on a hill between two thieves and shed his precious blood. And when you discover that your life matters to God and you make that commitment of obedience, he sprinkles you with blood, not literally, but before the very throne of God in heaven. And your life now belongs to him. You see, half the blood was sprinkled on the altar, according to Exodus 24. Then the people make a commitment and say, we will obey. And then they are sprinkled with blood. The response to the promise of obedience is the sprinkling of the blood. Why are they sprinkled after they promise? Because the blood sprinkling formalizes or seals what you've promised to do. Where is it sprinkled today now that there are no more sacrifices? First and foremost, as I mentioned, it's sprinkled in heaven before the altar of God. But you get sprinkled too in the waters of baptism, which I think Peter probably alludes to. So when it comes to the new covenant, we baptize adult professing believers after they promise to serve Christ and commit to be obedient to all that they have heard, teaching them, we're told, to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in the case of children, of course, it's different. They get sprinkled on the merits of their parents' profession until such a time as they themselves are ready to take up the covenant promises and commit to walking by faith. Well, in conclusion, in the first century, Christians were scattered across the Roman Empire. And they were under a constant pressure in a pagan society to measure their worth by their own attainments, by their honorable status, and by family connections. And unless they climbed that ladder of pagan values, they didn't matter in the eyes of society. But the way of Jesus was a new way. It pointed forward, out of the rat race, so to speak, 
Status in Jesus' community of brothers was not based on what you can accomplish yourself, but based on the fact that God has done an amazing thing for you, that He has known you from eternity. He set you apart for Himself. He lived, died, and rose again in your place, and you respond by committing your life as a Christ follower, a Christian, in His name. The Father's foreknowledge embraces in love an unworthy and an irrelevant people. The Spirit's consecration declares that you are precious in God's sight, special. You are identified as one of His own children. And your response is to trust and obey, to submit your life to Him and to covenant with Him, to engage yourself into the service of the Lord and to dedicate your life to walking with Him and with His people in a most sacred manner, different than the people around you. Different, I say. What's different about it? Well, that could be the subject of an entire other sermon. In fact, we're going to learn in the rest of Peter what's so special about a Christian's life. But here's one thing. Because the blood is mentioned, one thing that needs to be different about your life is that it is a life of sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed for you. And so you were called to sacrifice for Him and for others. As obvious as it might seem to you today, it wasn't as at all that obvious to the brothers and sisters centuries ago. They were tired, they were discouraged, and they were weak. They were on the verge of abandoning their faith because they didn't feel like anything that they did said, or thought mattered. They were overwhelmed by the pressures around them, and they kept comparing themselves to the prevailing mores and the ethos of the day. And they were drowning in this way of thinking. And so Peter writes to remind them is that you matter. And I think, if you're honest, you're more like Peter's readers than you realize. You need to recognize that your worth and your life's purpose comes from God's love and not from what you can do. It's because the Spirit has chosen you that you matter, not because you've chosen you or someone else chose you. Your response to this generosity is to embrace Christ with an obedient life and to hang on for all your worth. And you've been sprinkled by the blood as a seal of that commitment. This means for the rest of our lives we are committed to helping one another to fight against the tide of conformity to the world's standards. It's hostile and angry against Jesus. It doesn't believe in the standards of Christ and in the mercies of God. And so with the power and strength that His sprinkled blood provides, we're to live for Him. I don't think you ever again need to ask the question, Do I matter? But if you do, I for one am here to remind you, you do. God said so. Now let's live like it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is a refreshing reminder that things are not all as they seem. And that the story that we tell ourselves in our head or that we hear others telling us, our moms, our dads, our children, our colleagues, fellow students, just people in society in general, 
that isn't the way that it is and that we have succumbed if we're honest we have succumbed to this narrative and it's not it's not right it's not the way things are going to be and it's not the way they have to be now things can be different because you God are able more than able to help us in our weakness in our trembling and in our fear and our difficulty particularly in this matter of figuring out our purpose and our worth in your sight thank you that it has been settled that Jesus said so with his life death and resurrection and now in his holy word we've heard it may we believe it in Jesus name amen thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast if you'd like to learn more about us please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.